Thanks for listening to the IBC podcast. For daily news, features, interviews and more, visit IBC 365. Hello and welcome to the IBC podcast. My name's George Beaver and I'm the editor of IBC 365. On this episode of the podcast, supported by Imagine Communications, we're joined by Malcolm Cowan, Head of Engineering and Technology, Broadcast and Media Services at NEP UK, and John Myatt, CTO for Imagine Communications. Together, they discuss the unique challenges of introducing HDR and UHD into productions that are delivered to a mix of SDR and HDR channels. NEP has been using Imagine's SNP Pure IP media processing platform to support its UHD and HDR productions. So starting with Malcolm, we asked both how the industry is using HDR today. I think HDR is an amazing technology. I think it's, uh, it gives us a much, much better, obviously, a much better quality of picture. Um, it's primarily used mainly in the sports and entertainment genres, I would say, today. But obviously there are areas like reality are beginning to use it quite a lot as well. Um, but from a live perspective, it's it's mainly sport and with a little bit of entertainment as well. Um, I, I think the sort of wide colour gamut and high dynamic range absolutely adds a huge amount uh, to the to the viewer experience. Um, gone are the days of Rec 709 where you kind of got what you got and uh, it looked vaguely okay, but just nowhere near replicated what you can see with the human eye. So it was it was uh, it's been a big game changer in that respect. Um, I think it, you know it brings its challenges. We now have an order of magnitude more numbers of workflows to think about in the world of HDR and UHD than we ever had in the past. Uh, but when you get it right, it looks fantastic. Uh, and also, if you add in the kind of immersive audio and things like that, it sounds fantastic as well. So I think it, it, as a viewer experience, it's it's an incredible leap forward. Um, and unlike the joys of 3D in the past, I really do think it's here to stay. We asked, why is HDR more complicated as a workflow? A lot of the uh, the broadcasters we work with want to maintain the SDR version uh, as sacrosanct. You know, ultimately, the majority of their viewers are looking at it in SDR. So that is the driving force behind the transmission. But we still need to derive a HDR output, and we need to ideally do that with a, a single chain. So in the past, there's been quite a lot of you know dual chain work where you end up sometimes with two OB trucks generating effectively the same feed in SDR and HDR. Um, now technology's moved on. We're able to do that with a single chain, deriving SDR and HDR throughout. But that brings its own joys in terms of how you manage the kind of up mapping, down mapping, dealing with LUTs, how you make sure that your quality of signal is correct in each chain. And that the end result is, is great for both parties, i.e. The, the SDR viewer and the HDR viewer see the, see the right quality that they, and either does not affect each other. So we don't end up compromising one or the other. It's a lot like the introduction of high definition many, many years ago where the first shoots were done as, you know, I have an HD truck and an SD truck. And, you know, because the SD, if anybody remembers, standard definition also used to pay the bills, right? So then it became, you know, it, the sort of the work process between the truck and the network and the distribution 
all got organized to where you could produce an HDR program and everybody understood how the SDR would be cut from it. And it became for many years part of the production that they would keep safe the graphics for 4.3 and things like that. Um, but after a while, you know, we don't even, I think, do that so much anymore. The um, in UHD and HDR, it's a very similar set of work process being organized between the, you know, whoever's shooting, how it gets back to the network, how it gets organized into the different distributions. Um, as, as Malcolm mentioned, the, the goal is that you produce one event and that you produce it in HDR and in, in uh, usually UHD as well, but that then you can make a standard dynamic range version of it that looks really good, looks probably better than if you'd shot it in SDR. And, and that's really the objective of everybody. But to achieve that, that means that on in the truck, when you're shooting it, you have to be cognizant of that. Just like in, you know, shooting early HD, people had four, three keepsafe graticules in the cameras because it affected how you composed the shot. Here, there's an equivalent thing with the people, the camera shaders and some of the production positions where they have to really look at how is this going to look in SDR, not just does this look beautiful. We then asked about the impact of supplying HDR to broadcasters. Uh, well, obviously, we have to think long and hard about what the kind of pipeline is. Uh, so you know, we, we need to understand what they want to achieve, uh, whether or not, for example, they have a specific LUT they need to add into the mix so that we know what we're kind of working to, make sure that we've kind of documented, understood the entire process so that when we design the truck to fit in with the client requirements, that it, it, it works. You know, and when I say design, I don't mean we build a new truck. We just amend the elements within the truck to, to suit the workflow of that particular client. So there needs to be a little bit more than just rocking up with a with a truck and connecting up a generator and some cameras and then off you go. There has to be a reasonable amount of thought processes that go into it before you even get to the event itself. So there is a, a lot of thought goes into it. There's a lot of preparation goes into it. And also you need to understand that, you know, as with any kind of event, things change on the day. So you sometimes need to be able to think about right, I might need additional resource or I need to rethink how I do this. So quite often people turn up with the latest whiz-bang kit that they think is going to bring a lot to their production, but unfortunately it doesn't produce the required output for your equipment. So therefore you've got to adapt and, and make sure that all works and fits in. And, you know, back, back in the day that was usually just an SDI lead. Now it could be several SDI leads or IP or something you need to create a new version of, and then it may not have the right kind of output in the terms of a UHD or a HDR sense. So you've got to think about how you manage those requirements in terms of up mapping, down mapping, format changing. So there's, there's a lot of things that need to be thought about as opposed to in the past where you just kind of connected your cameras up. As long as everyone could see the pictures and the shaders could control the cameras, off you went. These days is a lot more thought processes that go into that so that you're checking every single point in the chain that the, the quality of the picture is correct and that it conforms to what the client wants at that stage, whether it be SDR, HDR, however it needs to be. So th this challenge is interesting because the client needs a language to express what they want. And so these LUTs have become like a proxy for that dialogue of you know, in our industry, somehow, every time we add a new technology, 
we seem to invent many ways to do it. So in um, in UHD, we've got, you know, you can do it as four wire SQD, four wire 2SI, 12 gig SDI, and of course 2110. Um, but then equally in the high dynamic range world, you've got the hybrid log gamma system, you've got the PQ system, and it's got a couple variations. And then you've got S-Log3, which is a fine system of its own. Um, so each of them can work, but you have to really think through what exactly am I doing on a given day? And if someone's providing me a signal, what exactly are they providing? As, as you note, even if you were just peering up with a truck for, you know, maybe another client has a truck at the same event and you're going to trade a few cameras, it, there's an, it's not just slinging a cable anymore. It's a five minute conversation of what exactly are you sending me? And so um, one of our, you know, lifeblood products, of course, is making conversion and HDR and UHD provide a, a you know, a, a combinatorically interesting number of conversions one might have to do. Um, so in a sense, it's great because, you know, that's what we do, but the getting all these conversions right is, is an interesting challenge. And the the LUTs, so the industry has finally settled on, you know, sort of 33-point cube LUTs with a certain kind of interpolation. And, you know, that's good because it allows the program, the client, in your case, to specify, I'm going to convert to SDR using this LUT. Why don't you please use this LUT to check the camera shading and things ahead of time? And that prevents a whole lot of grief later. The, the LUT is part of the production design. So ultimately the you know like the bbc publishes a set of lots they're 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 nicely done um different event organizers often will create lots of their own you know the obs created a set of lots for the olympics um comcast and sky uk together have created well sky UK is part of comcast but they've uh, they've got a set of lots that are and, and actually a nice white paper that goes with them that explains how they're used and where they're used in the workflow process um, sometimes there's a different LUT for graphics versus for, you know, scene content because you might want to position the, the white level of the graphics in some different way. So it, it's very much part of the production design, especially if you're going to be, you know, look, you know, sometimes you want to have a specific look of a production. You know, you want it to be a little warmer, you want it to be colored a little differently or this or that. And so LUTs are a way to achieve that and to achieve it on archival footage and to achieve it repeatedly in post-production as well. Because, you know, you have to remember all these bits of footage that are produced in an event, they have a whole life after the event as well. Totally agree with you, John. There's, there's, there's a lot goes on. Yeah, we, we can use the stuff from, say, the last World Cup or the last European Championships or the last Olympics. All of that content, depending on rights, obviously, can get reused a lot. And it, depending on where it gets used in the post-production process, you know, you can can easily make it look terrible <laughs> without too much effort. So understanding the kind of color pipeline, working out the workflow of all these things is very important and, and the kind of documentation that sits behind it. So everyone knows that this was produced in a specific way, therefore it needs to be handled in a specific way. It's key to get that information out there so people can deal with it properly. Right, and, and to document it, frankly. I mean, the, the stripe on the back of the tape, you know, used to just say 1080i. 
And now it's got to say about 12 different things about what's really on those pixels and what they mean. Not just raster size, color format, LUTs used, et cetera, et cetera. Our trucks are very well equipped, so we don't need to change too much. Obviously, there's you know different client requirements. They'll want different numbers of a certain amount of resource. They may want a specific camera channel, or they may want a specific replay channel. So we you know we we cater for those requirements. The, the trucks are built to have prime assets moved in and out of them as needed. So that that's not generally a problem. I mean, I think things like replays quite often in order to not blow away all your kind of ingest and replay channels, they'll work 1080p, not UHD, and that then gets upmapped to UHD, but they're still working 1080p HDR. So, you know, that's another element of how a truck needs to, or a, or a facility, doesn't necessarily nail to a truck, has to adapt to the kind of different changing of formats within that entire workflow. And some of those things are driven just by pure economics. You, you know, you cannot afford to bring in twice or three times as many replay or record servers just because you're doing it in UHD. So sometimes you have to adapt and you make allowances for it. And as the replay element of any live show is a very small proportion, that's something you're prepared to take on the chin. And and conversion processes for 1080p pictures look amazing. So I don't think anyone really notices that much. So it, it, those are the kind of things you kind of have to kind of adapt as you go along. So for example, all the processing resource in the truck whether that be uh, the Selenium processors that Imagine make or you know, other devices we have in the chain, they all have to be adaptable to suit these different requirements as and when they come up. So that's when as part of the pre-planning I was talking about earlier, making sure that you've got all that kind of uh, firepower aimed in the right direction to suit the workflow that you're achieving at the time. And we asked how closely NEP works with Imagine to achieve its goals. Yeah, I mean, we, we um, as a company, we're always kind of keen to sort of talk to vendors to make sure that we're kind of heading all in the same direction. Obviously, you know, everyone has an agenda, um, so we want to make sure that everyone conforms to our agenda. But um, we, we're just trying to make sure that the the best way of producing the content is, is is kind of talked about. And you know, folks like us are at the are at the coalface. We can feed that information back to the vendors about. The, you know, on the day requirements, what actually is required. Because quite a lot of time people produce amazing boxes that do amazing things, but you probably use about 2% of that resource. You know, and the nitty gritty day-to-day stuff that you need every day, day in, day out till the cows come home, you need lots of that. So it's kind of making sure that the, the kind of feedback goes to the vendors about what's important so that they, you know, they are actively helping you get to that end goal. Yeah, and, and we value the relationship with, you know, primary, especially shooting and production companies like NEP that, you know, if you read the ITU standards, they tell you a little bit about PQ and HLG, but they don't tell you why. And really the how to actually use these standards in real productions to make beautiful video is part of the creative process that's happening on the truck and in the production team. And so to make tools that that achieve it, you have to be in that dialogue with the people who use them and evolving them to suit that purpose. So, you know, it's not that the IT standards aren't perfect, they are incredibly perfect, but they are, um, they're like reading the encyclopedia versus actually reading a novel that describes how and why. So it's very much a, uh, you know, a process both across vendors within the industry we have more dialogue than I think we've ever had before 
in the technical working groups and things. And then also with the, you know, the whole chain of custody of the video, if you think about all the hands that high dynamic range video goes through from the shooting, the production, the, you know, distribution back to the network, the network then purposes it into different distribution channels that might even be redistributed before they reach an end consumer. You know, to achieve a high dynamic range viewing experience for that consumer who's maybe two distributions away from the network, that's, that's going to take a few years for things to really become perfect at every juncture. But we see today in, you know, straightforward distributions, like, you know, if, say, NEP produces an event and it goes off to Sky UK, who then distributes it to their viewers, that distribution in HDR looks quite, quite lovely. And now a word from our sponsor. We are Imagine Communications, and we help media companies make and monetize TV. Our customers are the innovators, influencers, and idea makers who inform, entertain, and shape the way we experience the world. In the grand scheme of things, we recognize that we're just contributors to someone else's big idea. We're proud to be a part of it. Visit imaginecommunications.com for more information. We asked how useful NEP has found Imagine's SNP processors. From a from a processing perspective, um, you know, there is a there is a lot that needs to happen on a truck, and therefore we need to get a kind of the best fit for that in terms of a box that meets many of those requirements. Uh, so having a one RU box that we can use to do an awful lot of processing, such as up mapping, down mapping changing colour gamuts, etc., um, you know, deinterlacing, you know, having a box that fits quite a lot of the requirements in one go is obviously a bonus. So the SMP fits in very nicely in that respect. So we can we can achieve a lot with a single box that would, you know, five years ago you'd probably look in at a rack full of equipment to do something very similar. So it is is a very useful tool and it's used a lot for our kind of sky football coverage and for a lot of our other projects. Yeah, I think one of our design goals in SNP was that we could take the very common use case of take 1080i archival footage, you know, deinterlace it, map it up to 1080p, and flip it through the HDR LUTs or HDR conversions to be matched into the given production at a very high density. So you can do, I think each processor does four of that, and you can have 16 of those in a box, which is a, you know, a lot. Yeah, it gives you a lot of options, and 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 like I said earlier in the conversation, the 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 folk turning up at the last minute with the latest whiz bang five thousand, which doesn't fit anywhere in your workflow, then you do need a box that can take a variety of inputs and generate a variety of outputs that will fit into that kind of scenario. So you can deal with the what ifs, the kind of value adds that sometimes turn up at the last minute. Yeah, one of the other things that we put in there is you know people like. LUTs because they're predictable, but at the same time, you in a live environment where you're trying to match to your cameras and it's a rainy day or a sunny day, we, we also left in a bunch of the normal traditional adjustment knobs. So you can take that archival footage and tweak it a bit, you know, pump up the luminance, whatever, to make it visually match the production you want as opposed to just technically match. Yeah, having, having the capability to do that is, is, is extremely useful. Um, and ultimately, with technology rolling forward over time, I think, you know, 
we won't kind of have boxes that are specific to a particular workflow. They will just be a, a processing node. You decide what you want to do in it, and ultimately that'll come down to how much you've paid and what licenses are on the box. But ultimately having that capability is, is going to be where we go. And the SOP unit is very much part of that process at the moment. And finally, we ask, how quickly is UHD being adopted in production? UHD is an interesting one because um, it requires a lot of resource. Um, it requires a lot of bandwidth, basically. So your cameras, your replay servers, your vision mixers, your graphics equipment, all of it needs a fair bit of bandwidth in order to sort of work in a UHD sense. And as I mentioned earlier with the EVS servers or your replay servers, 1080p works quite well for quite a lot of those things. So pe people are looking at the commercials of all of this and whether or not UHD is actually what's going to work for everyone. Absolutely, UHD has its place, but not necessarily for every production. So I would say that there's a, there's a kind of bang for buck conversation that goes on. You, you, you know, ideally everything would be in UHD because it, you know, it gives you an amazing kind of picture and a great archive to work from. Add that to HDR, and you know, and you've got an amazing product. But not necessarily suits every workflow or every pocket. So I think there's a there's conversations to be had around UHD. Regard to HDR, I think HDR works for both HD and UHD. I can't see a reason why not to use HDR for the future. Um, there it is. It you know brings a huge kind of quality uplift to any content. Um, obviously, we need to ensure that that's done properly, people are trained correctly, the processes involved in generating that are well thought through, but I think HDR is, is very much a game changer. Yeah, I absolutely see the same thing across the world and across different customers, that HDR is something that an average consumer looks at and says, that looks great, whereas UHD, when they're accustomed to looking at HD, if they're standing a few feet away, they say, oh, that's interesting. But the HDR makes a profound, you know, viewable, you know, the average viewer can see that HDR looks great. And ultimately, that's what drives, you know, their choices about what programs they watch. Thanks to Malcolm from NEP and John from Imagine for supporting this episode. We hope you've enjoyed their conversation and learned something new about how HDR and UHD is being adopted and implemented. For more on Imagine's range of products, visit imaginecommunications.com. And that's it for this episode. We have a series of podcasts coming up in the next few weeks, and you can listen to them all via your usual podcast providers and at ibc.org. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.